Good evening, thank you for coming. Um, we want to remind everyone, this week, uh, Sunday, we're having an awesome, awesome, awesome event uh, at the NASA Center, 8 o'clock this Sunday, the 18th of um, December 18th, the 18th of Kislev, going into the 19th of Kislev, the eve of the 19th of Kislev, big concert uh, with Yonatan Razel. Uh, I don't think he's ever been in Los Angeles. Awesome, awesome singer, uh, and it's going to be real soulful music. It's going to be very powerful uh, it's going to be it's going to be accompanied by some powerful Hasidic ideas uh, to add soul and life uh, to the music. A deeper soul. Music has a soul, but a deeper soul. It's going to be one incredible evening. So, everyone, go to myon.com. Get your tickets uh, for this awesome night. Definitely will leave you uplifted, refreshed, and energized. So please come and tell your friends and. Uh, it's an opportunity not to be missed. He's an incredible composer and musician with a lot of power. Very, very, very popular in Israel. Um, and um, I think everyone would really, really, really benefit greatly from this evening, in addition to the fact that it's a very, very, very powerful night for Jews to get together uh, due to the auspiciousness of that day, uh, the day, the yard site of the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the Holy Magid, Reb Doiv Ber, the Holy Magid, the Rebbe of all the Rebbes, the teacher, the master of all the masters, and the day of the liberation of the Balatanya from jail, in which the, day, the wellsprings of Chassidus were given permission from above to spread across the world. And that's what we do over here at Mayan. So it is a day of neshama, it's a day of soul, it's a day of depth, it's a day of meaning. So please, come. Uh, don't be lazy, don't just lay around, just come to the event and you'll enjoy it immensely, um, no doubt in my mind. Again, so this is 8 o'clock this coming Sunday. And please spread the word, please, please spread the word. The more people, the more energy, the more holiness, the more light we bring into the world, the more we can dispel the darkness of the exile. So let's do this all together, teamwork. Thank you. Uh, tonight's class, uh, which I want to uh, dedicate towards the spreading of Hasidus. Uh, we will be discussing that in the class tonight, um, the meaning of why it is so important. Um, tonight's class has been sponsored, Baruch Hashem, by quite a few people. Um, my good friend, Rabbi Aaron Perry, um, has dedicated this year in honor of his father's yard site, uh, which is on the, I think, 14th, of Kislev, that's tomorrow night. Um, Avram Shmuel ben Meir Halevi, may his neshama have a very great aliyah, and also to his, uh, an honor, Luzecha Nishmas, uh, 
his wife that uh, was of a first marriage. Uh, her name is Masha Bas Shmuel, whose yard site on the 15th of Kislev is going to be her 10th yard site. 10 is a very auspicious number for a soul, for an elevation of her soul. May her soul be elevated to the greatest of heights. And may she and your father also channel lots of brachas to you and your mishpacha for all that you need, the gashmis and the material and in the spiritual. Thank you so much for that dedication. Um, the sheer and possibly the CD, depends if we're going to have the CD machine working tomorrow. Bezrat Hashem, it seems like we have all of our equipment here, it just has to be put together. Um, if we do, and there will be a CD, so the CD has been sponsored by my dear, dear friend, Rabbi Shleima Goldner, and this is in honor of his mother's yard site, Belima Reza, Basr of Avram Shleima, whose yard site is on the 16th of Kislev. May her neshama have the greatest aliyah to the greatest of heights, and may she channel lots of brachas to you, Rabbi Shleima, and your family, with mazel bracha, and only, only good, and you should be able to continue uh, doing what you've been doing so well for us and for so many other Yidden, and that is being of such a help with all your heart and all your soul. May Hashem bench you and your mishpacha with everything. Another dedication tonight was by the, the Davidov family, uh, Moshe Davidov, and um, this is in honor of Mrs. Davidov's, Esther Davidov's father, Zyortzeit, which is on the 19th of Kislev, Aaron ben Baruch, May his neshama have an awesomely great aliyah, especially since it's on such an auspicious day, and especially since we are spreading Hasidus, which is the energy of that day, in the honor of his neshama who passed away on that day. May this carry his neshama to very, very great heights, and much bracha to the Davidov family, and much mazel, and everything, and all the good that you do. May Hashem bless all you, the work that you do um, of spreading light in this world. Uh, another dedication, last but not least, by my dear, dear friend, Shimon Lianz, and this is in honor of his wife's uh, birthday, Jody Lianz's birthday, on the 16th of Kislev, Shandel Malka, uh, Bas Meir Ziskind. May she have a a wonderful good year in the, in the material and in the spiritual, good health, nachas from the children, and only, 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 only good things, simchas and happy things for the entire family, and only, only wonderful things. Another sponsor tonight was by our very dear friends, the Liedermans, by Maggie Liederman. And this is in honor of her husband, Mordechai Liederman, Martin Liederman's birthday coming up on the 19th of Kislev. May Hashem bench him with an incredible, wonderful, wonderful, prosperous year and good health for both of you, both of you, and uh, Jabif Simchas and the family this year. Much mazel and bracha, and only, only, only good. Thanks to all those that have dedicated. And now we are ready to begin tonight's class. Um, I do want to mention, next week, Monday, I'm going to be out of town. So the class is going to happen on Tuesday night. So just everybody be aware of that. Next week, the class is going to be moved to Tuesday instead of Monday. All right. Um, right in the beginning of the parsha, the Pasuk says that Yaakov sent messengers to his brother Esau. Okay? This is a major confrontation that's going to happen now between Yaakov and Esau after 20 years, they were 22 years exactly at this point, um, maybe it was about 20 years, the two years happened later, but 20 years that Yaakov hasn't seen his brother Esau. When they left, they were, Esau wanted to, was, wanted to murder his brother out of anger for him stealing his blessings. And now Yaakov... He's coming back to the land of Israel, returning, and he's worried about his brother Esau. So he sends these agents, these messengers, to Esau, to his brother Esau. 
uh, to the land of Edom to see, kind of to smell out like what's going on, to feel, to feel out what's taking place. Okay, he sends them out. And um, so he sends these messengers out to Esau. And uh, they go and they come back and they tell him that Esau is coming even though you are extending a peaceful hand to make peace with him. Esau is coming with 400 men and uh, he wants to decimate you and your entire family. Yaakov is terrified. Yaakov calls out to God. He prays. He prepares a big gift. He's going to bribe his brother Esau. He wants to appease him. He prepares himself for war. It's a whole big deal. And then we have this dramatic encounter of Yaakov and Esau. Very powerful. And this represents the entire... Um, interaction of Jew and Gentile in this world, uh, particularly the descendants of Esau. This is, this is for our long 2,000 years exile. There's very, very powerful lessons over here like we've discussed in other years. But today I want to focus on something uh, a little bit more spiritual. And that is right in the beginning of the Parsha. The opening words of the Parsha are Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim. That Yaakov sends Malachim. Now Rashi says on the words Malachim, Rashi says, the first Rashi in the Parsha, Malachim Mamish. This means literally angels. It means you could learn, maybe other commentators learn that way, that when it says, eh, the Cheskuni, for instance, I'm looking right now, or the Targum, this is also the Targum, the Targum says that he sent Izgadin. Now, Izgadin means agents. He sent messengers. The word Malachim sometimes is referred to as, a, as an agent. And yet, um, um, yet uh, which means it could have been human, human messengers. But like we find when Moshe sent messengers to Edom, it also says, Vayishlach Moshe Malachim. And the, or the Jewish people sent Malachim to Edom. It doesn't mean angels. It means messengers. And the reason why messengers would be called Malachim, because what are Malachim? What are angels? Angels are always sent on, they're messengers of God. So therefore, when you have human messengers, they could also be called malachim. And in Medrash, there's actually an argument. There's two opinions. The Midrash brings two opinions of Yaakov. Yaakov sent terrestrial beings, physical human beings, or if he sent celestial beings, spiritual beings, angels. It's machloikas. It's an argument. Rashi, however, doesn't says that what Yaakov sent was physical angels. I'm sorry, literal angels. Malachim mamish. He sent angels to Esau. So we need to understand what it is, why is it? Why does, first of all, how does Rashi know that? How does Rashi derive from, from the Pasuk that Yaakov sent Ma, real Malachim? Now there's a whole question if you're even allowed to do so. The Erechayim HaKadosh, one of the great commentators, asked the question, how could Yaakov use godly beings? They're, 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 these are agents of God They're not meant to be human agents And Yaakov is using them for something personal Yes, he's worried, he's scared his, his, his family is in danger But still, it's his own personal thing It's not like he was going to do Okay, in a sense, saving your family, saving your life is a mitzvah But it was, it was a personal need that he had right now When he's using an angel Who gave him the right to do so And if, according to Pshat We do find that the word malachim Means sometimes messengers so why does he, Rashi, who usually tries to keep to the most simplest interpretation of things, need to get a little bit more, enter more into the realm of the imagination and give us to, to think that, and to bring us to this, that Yaakov is sending these, these angels when we can just say it's, it's, it's regular people. And the answer is because um, 
Rashi understood that otherwise this would have been that this would be forbidden. To send physical agents towards Esav would be jeopardizing them and putting their lives in danger. Because Esav was a notorious murderer. He was a killer. He was actually the most sophisticated warrior. He was the most advanced. He was the most... Uh, the, 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 he had the world acclaim of the highest or the... He was the heavyweight champion uh, warrior in the world, if you can say, Esav. Because he had, he had taken the champion title away from Nimrod. He killed Nimrod. Nimrod was the fighter. He was even considered a god because of his incredible warrior powers. And Esav killed him. So Esav was a very, very, very dangerous man, especially when he was ticked off. And Esav was mad, dead mad at his brother Yaakov. So if Yaakov is sending messengers, human messengers to Esav, he would be sending these people into the lion's den. So he would be putting them in danger. How is he allowed to do so? We know that a, when someone sends someone on a mission, and that mission causes damage to the messenger, the one who sent him is responsible. So how would Yaakov be allowed even to put these people in danger? Therefore, we have to say that he sent not... Um, that leads us to say that he sent... Um, that he sent... Uh, that these were malachim. So therefore, even though Esau is a very dangerous human being, he doesn't have power over angelic beings. Yaakov does have power over angelic beings. Like we find in the Parsha, that Yaakov wrestles with an angel and he overcomes him. Fine, because that's because of Yaakov's attachment to God that gives him supremacy or power, superiority over over an angel, but Esau doesn't have that power. So that's why he used the angels, because that was the safest way to go. However, the question that still doesn't really answer fully the question, because we can still really ask, maybe, or why does Yaakov have to send angels? Yaakov can still send um, people, but he doesn't have to send them as his messengers. He can send them as spies. He can have them disguise themselves. See, not everybody that encountered Esau was chopped, uh, was chopped meat. Um, Esau was a, a lord over his territory and people came by all the time. He did business with people and the like. He could have sent them as pretending to be merchants, pretending to be, you know, in some kind of a caravan, passing by and speak. And by that he can feel what's going on with Esau. And even if they would have to have a conversation with him and they can report and they can tell him what Yaakov wanted them to say to them that Yaakov is on his way, they don't have to say it in a way that Yaakov sent them. They can say, by the way, we had just saw your brother. He's been out of town. How do we know? We haven't seen him in a long time. We just saw your brother coming down the road. And he's got a large family. I see he's got a lot of cattle. He has a lot of things. He could have done that. So why would, why, why, why does Yaakov have to send Malachim? Now, how we know that maybe that's what Yaakov did. Again, the whole question was that maybe Yaakov, that Yaakov is sending Malachim, why is sending Malachim? Because it can't be he sends you. Rashi knows it can't be human beings because human beings, he wouldn't be allowed to put them in such a dangerous situation. But you can argue that they would disguise themselves. The answer is the word Malachim can mean one of two things. Either it can mean explicit messengers, people that are openly a messenger, or it can mean angels. One of the two. It doesn't mean spies. So... Since it doesn't mean spies, and I only have an option, what are my two options? Either it means angels, or it means, either it means angels, or it means uh, messengers, explicit, open messengers. So Rashi has to go with the thing that it must be angels. Fine, but this only answers the question how we know it's angels. It still doesn't explain why Yaakov didn't send, why couldn't Yaakov send spies? Human people, human beings disguised, and he doesn't have to take 
such to go to such an extreme and send angels to his brother Esav, which is a very big deal. So we have to say that there was a spiritual purpose to this. The reason why Yaakov is using angels was because sending these people to Esav was not just to find out information. To find that information, he could have sent human beings. He sent these angels because he wants to affect Esav. He wanted to do some kind of a rectification. He wasn't sure exactly with the spiritual status of where Esav is standing. When he time he left them, Esav was in a very, 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 in a very, very, very um, uh, immoral state, in a very, very lonely state. But now he wasn't exactly sure. Maybe in the last 20 years, Esav was able to kind of rehabilitate himself and get back to himself and become somewhat of a, of, a, of, a, of a decent human being. He wasn't sure. But what he does now is he sends these angels to help Esav because he realizes when you have an encounter with an angel, a malach is a very, 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 very powerful spiritual being. And when an angel comes to visit you, it leaves an impact on you. An angel is radiating godly light. I mean, I never met an angel. I don't know what it is. Maybe I did. Maybe it was disguised. But, you know, a- a- angels are... You, a person meets Eliyahu Anavi. We know that you're going to be probably quite different in your life after you've had a- an encounter with Elijah the prophet. So when you met, when Esau is going to meet these malachim, these malachim are going to shine light into his soul and perhaps crack his shell, his tough outer skin of Esau and maybe reach for that inner human spark that is deep inside him and, and bring out that brotherly love or that, that, that human side of Esau that he should have compassion and maybe feel for his brother. And that's why he said that you have to say that that's the reason why Yaakov is sending these malachim for this spiritual purpose. Based on this, if this is the case, uh, uh, we have, so now we will, let's analyze a teaching from the great, great Hasidic master whose yard site we're going to celebrate next week, Reb Doiv Ber of Mesrich, which he taught a fascinating teaching uh, right before his passing. And about this, and under the, in the light of what we j- had just mentioned, his teaching seems to be very problematic. Okay? The, his, one of his great students, Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi, whose celebration is also next week, the Balatanya, once related to his students, to his Hasidim, that before the passing of his teacher, when the holy Mizritcha Magid was laying on his deathbed, four days before his passing, in the year 1770, which, which is the year 1772, on Shabbos, which was on four days before, because then the 19th of Kislev, the Magid passed away on a Tuesday, so four days earlier of the 19th, which is I think the 15th of Kislev, the Magid was in bed, surrounded by, he's very ill, and he was surrounded by his greatest students, and the Magid was Parsha's Vayishlach, this week's Parsha, and the Magid gave over a small little teaching, and he said on the words, Vayishlach Yaakov Malachim, that Yaakov sent agents, sent messengers. He brought what Rashi said, that what does Malachim mean? Malachim Mamish means literally angels. And the Magid taught a mysterious teaching. He says like this. He says that what, 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 what does it mean, Malachim Mamish? Literal angels. So hear what the Magid says. The Magid says, the literal element of the angels... Following, the, lit, the literal element of the angels is what Yaakov sent to Esau. 
But the spiritual element of the angels remained with Yaakov. Malachim mamish. So what is the Magid doing? The Magid is playing with the word mamish. Mamish means literal. But ma- when you say something is literal, generally it means you can touch it. It's the literal, it's li- you know, this is literal, literally something. It means you can, be, you can t- touch it. So the Magid says, what did Yaakov send to Esau? Only the touchable part of the angels, which means their, phys- their physical side. He sent them their bodies, the angels, the physical element of the angels traveled to Esau, to Harseir. But the soul of the angels, the inner part of the angels, they remained, they never went on this mission. They stayed in Yaakov, with Yaakov, close to Yaakov, by Yaakov. That is the words that the Magid says. So reading this, hearing this teaching, and looking at it just... You know, the problem with people have a lot is people don't realize the depth of the Hasidic masters and how their teachings are the deepest pearls of wisdom. And they contain within them the deepest secrets of life. Most people hear a vort like this and what they think in their mind is cute. Nice. Now you think that the holy Mizritcha Magad is laying in his bed four days before his soul is going to return to his maker and he's making little cute little insights into a, into a Pasuk. Malach and Mamish. Oh, Yaakov is sending the physicality of the Malach, but the, only the Mamish of the Malach, but the, but the spirit of the Malach stays by Yaakov. It's insane to even think so. If we know who the Magad is. You know, if you begin to look at who the students of the holy Magad are, Students, you go through all of them. Reb Shmelka of Nicholasburg, Reb Pinchas the Baal Hafla, Reb Nachum of Chernobyl, Reb Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, Reb Lamelech of Lizensk, Reb Zusha of Anapoli, and we can go on and on. These were these were giants, spiritual giants, all of the miracle workers, people that can resurrect the dead. There were many stories of these students that can resurrect the dead. People that were geniuses who knew the entire Torah on all levels. You're talking about giants of giants. And they were subservient to the Magid, like the Magid, they were like, they were nothing in front of the Magid. All these giants. So you know that the Magid was like on a whole different level. I saw today from the Holy Ruziner, the Ruziner said on Yutes Kislev, because the Ruziner is a grandson of the Magid, the Holy Ruziner. He's a great grandson of the Magid. His grandfather was the Malach. His father was Reb Sholem of Provich, whose father was Reb Avram the Malach. And the Malach is a son of the Holy, of the, of the holy Magid. And the, so the, the Rishon has said that my grandfather, Holy Magid, was a nefesh who included all the nefeshes of all the tzaddikim. That means all the future tzaddikim, they were all inside him, and he's the essence of the Torah himself. So he didn't say an acute vertalach. So we have to now analyze. If we take this teaching of the Magid, and what we want to do today is we're going to put it under the microscope, and try to look at it and see a little deeper and see there's a whole world opening up to us in this little teaching. A world about life and understanding life. Because at first glance, it seems like, what does he say? That what did Yaakov send to, to, to Esau? Only the body of the Malachim. Which means only the shell of the Malachim. The shadow the, or the shell. The outer case of the Malach. But the true soul of the Malachim, they stayed by Yaakov. But that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. What did we say earlier? Why does Yaakov have to send Malachim to Esau in the first place? Why? 
I mean, just to find out what's going on, he doesn't have to send angels. He's sending angels to him. Why? Because he wants to rectify his soul. How is he going to rectify Esau's soul? By sending him an intense, powerful, potent, spiritual being who's going to illuminate. If ya- so why in the world would Yaakov keep the spiritual energies of the Malach by him and send only the, 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 physical, the physical side of the angel? What would be the benefit of that? If I, you see, if, I, if, if, to, if to speak to Esau, I need someone physical, not spiritual, then why don't I send human beings? Human beings are more physical than angels. What do I need an angel for? The only reason I'm selecting an angel, because an angel is a spiritual being. Comes to Mizritcha Magad and says, no, the spirituality of the angel stays by Yaakov. And only the physical part of the angel, which is the body, goes to where? Goes to Esau. So what did you gain by sending a malach? If the whole, the whole nucleus of the angel or the soul of the angel stays by you, then you're giving him an empty... An em- <laughs> doesn't make any sense. The other thing is, how can you differentiate between the body and the soul of the angel? Or rather, let's put it this way, how can the physical side of the angel go somewhere without its soul? If the soul remains by Yaakov, then the, the body is, of course, dysfunctional. The body doesn't have any function without a soul. A body can't move a limb. Now that's even, let's understand that, that's even by human beings who are primarily entities of this world, residents of this world, which means we are primarily physical beings. Within our physical bodies, we have an ashamba, we have a soul. But our physicality is far more pronounced. It's far more, and we're going to speak later about this, what that means, but the physical side of us is stronger because we're physical creatures. It's not happen tense that we have a body. Our bodies are part of who we are. That we are in bodies. Fine. And even humans who are such physical beings take their soul out of their body and the soul is lifeless. It can't do anything. What do you do with the body without a soul? You put it in the ground. It's, it's to no value. How much more so a soul, I'm sorry, an angel, who doesn't, who doesn't even have a body. If he comes into this world, he gets a body, he puts on a body like a costume. Literally, he's putting on a costume. So his body is, is, is totally a non-entity without his neshama. So how can Yaakov go and send the bodies of those angels to Esau and, and, and keep the souls? How can the body do anything without the soul? It's a lifeless entity. It's like sending a pair of pants without the wearer inside of it. it, it it's ridiculous. It doesn't work. So what is the maggot saying? And last but not least, when Rashi is emphasizing the word mamish, malachim mamish, what is Rashi? Let's go into the mind of Rashi for a moment. What does Rashi want to emphasize when he says mamish? Rashi wants to emphasize, you shouldn't learn that what does malachim mean? A, 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 a human being who is similar to an angel, a human being that's, that's an, an emissary, which means don't mistake it with a different type of malach, which malach might be just an agent whose entire association with an angel is only because they're both doing a mission, you shouldn't say that. When, I, when it says malachim, it means literally angels. That means Rashi, is, with his word mamish, is trying to emphasize that we're not dealing with something physical human. Malachim mamish, we're trying to emphasize that these are, these are spiritual beings. Literally spiritual beings. According to the Magid, the Magid is taking that very same word mamish, and using the word mamish to emphasize the exact opposite. 
That what? That only the physical side, only the mamish, only the substance, only the, the flesh and blood, so to speak, of the angel he sent, but the soul stayed by him. That means that the mamish is emphasizing how non-spiritual this whole, this whole malachim malach is. So it comes out that Rashi and the Magid, in using the same terms, are, are contradicting each other. And obviously the Magid is not trying to take Rashi out of its, out of its meaning. He's playing around with it. He's just saying a vertula. He's not doing that. If according to Rashi, the word mamish is emphasizing how angelic these, angel, these, these messengers were, how can the Magid take those very same words and, and, and emphasize how non-angelic? You know, by the way, we're talking about a Malach. <laughs> Talk about the Mizritcha Magid. He knew what Malachim is. His son, I just read a story recently. His son was known to be Rabbi Avram HaMalach. So Rabbi Avram HaMalach, why was he called a Malach? Because literally he was an angel. He was not a... Uh, he didn't, he, he, he was an angelic being. He lived in this world, he was a human being, but he was, he was a completely heavenly being. It, the, 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 the Malach had a, one of the, was, was a secluded person. He sat all day, he was a very introverted human being, didn't come out, and he sat and he served God on the highest level of service we can't even imagine. That's why people called him an angel. After his father passed away, the Magid, he passed away just like five years later, four or five years later, very, very, lived very young, the Malach. A um, very, very short life. His colleague, a friend of his, Rabbi Nachem of Chernobyl, wanted, um, w- wanted to get him a job. He felt that such a gem should be influencing Jews. He shouldn't be an introverted sitting himself in his room. He should have an influence. So he got him a job to be the... He spoke to the people of Fastiv. That's where actually where the, Magad, where, the, where the Malach is buried. We went to visit it when we did our trip. So he spoke to the people in Fastiv that they should have the Malach, they should appoint the Malach as the Magid of their town. Fine. So they moved, the Magid moved, the Malach moved with his family to Fastiv. Meanwhile, Reb Nacham of Chernobyl gets a complaint from the people in Fastiv. They say, we hired the, Mal- the Malach, we, we kind of, we brought him over here, we paid the moving expenses and everything, he's here in town, but we can't get him out of his room. He's not coming out to speak ever. So what do we gain from having a Magid who's sitting secluded in his room? So Reb Nacham of Chernobyl said, don't worry, he says, it happens to be, it's a good time, because I just got an invitation from a chassid of mine, a Chernobler chassid, who lives in Fastiv, who had a baby boy, and he wants me to come, he's inviting me to the bris, or wants me to come to be the sandik to hold the baby. So you know what, I'm going to come, and being that the malach knows how to do a bris, how to be a mohel, I'm going to honor the malach to be the mohel. He's going to be the circumciser, I'm going to be the sandik, so at least we'll get him out of his closed room. Fine. Everybody agreed. The whole town was excited. They're finally going to get to see their own Magid. And Reb Nochem came, and that was also a big deal. And there was a big bris, and everybody came to shul, and they're waiting for the Malach. The Malach walked into the room, and his face was so frightening. It was so terrifying, because the, the Malach had such fear of God, that that fear that he had of, the, of, of Hashem on the highest levels was radiating from his face. And the people that saw him got so terrified that the entire shul ran for their lives. Through the window, through the door. They can run as fast as their feet can carry them. No one stayed in shul. Besides the baby and the Reb Nochem of Chernobyl who's holding the baby. Reb Nochem is barely able to hold, I don't even know if the father remained. I don't know. 
Reb Nachem is barely able to hold the baby because Reb Nachem himself is shaking like a leaf as he's holding the baby for the bris. And somehow the bris happened. After that, Reb Nachem came back home to his house, to whatever, and his shamas, his gabai, whatever, whether it was in his house or whether it was at the place that he was staying, offered him a cup of tea. And Reb Nachem couldn't, he, was, he, was shake, he couldn't come back to himself. And afterwards the tea got cold, so the gabai came and he brought him a second tea. And he didn't touch it. So he, afterwards he said to him, Rebbe, you know, you should have something to drink. Uh, so the Rebbe said, how can you drink tea after you see someone who serves God like that? That's the impact he had on him. So this is, and he's the son of the Magid. So I'm just giving you an idea who we're talking about. Mizricha Magid, Rabdoiv Ber of Mizrich. In any case, but what does he mean in his teaching? He says, Malachim Amish. And again, it can't be for, uh, to read it on face value that, 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 that Yaakov is sending only the phys- Hey, He doesn't want to uh, you know, harm the malachim, so he tells them, send your bodies to him and keep your souls by me. That doesn't make any sense. Well, as we said before, how is that possible? What would be the benefit? That, that contradicts the whole idea of what Rashi says in the word mamish. So we have to obviously have a different purish. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe has actually a very, very powerful insight into this idea. And what I would like to do today is share with you first a simpler version of this teaching and then a deeper version of this teaching, of, of, of what it means. On the simpler level, on this, it's the same idea but two, di- two levels of understanding of it. So first on the simpler version. He says a very interesting thing. The Magad is now four days before his passing. He's about to give over to his disciples to be the next generation of Hasidic mentors and teachers. Amongst them is one of his most precious students, Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi, who's, who was the apple of his eye. And it's interesting, the Mizricha Magid said to Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi, whether, I think he said it to him on the day of his actual passing, on the 19th of Kislev. He said, today, my dear student, today, Zalman Yu, he called him Zalman Yu, Zalman Yu, today is our Yom Tif. This is our holiday. Sadly, the Magid passed away that day, and we know that a yard side of a tzaddik is really is, is a holiday for him because his soul goes higher and higher. And the other thing was a mystery for 26 years. 26 years later, in the year 1798, on 19th of Kislev, was the day that his student, Rabshneer Zalman, who has been put into prison because of ac- false accusations against him, was freed. And permission was granted for his teachings of Yafutsu Menasecha Chutzah, that his wellsprings of the deepest teachings of the esoteric teachings of Hasidus and Torah to spread across the world. And that's what he meant, this is our holiday. So therefore it's likely to say that when he was giving this little teaching of Ayishlach Yaakov Malachem, Malachem Mamish, this little teaching contains within itself the seeds of the future of the, of, the, of the teachings that was, to, was going to emerge in relationship to the 19th of Kislev, which is the, which the 19th of Kislev is the day where Hasidus, which is the deepest secrets of the Torah, flow forth to the world. So there's somehow, there's something about this teaching that illustrates the point of it all. What is, what is the objective of your teachings reaching and coming forth these deep esoteric teachings? So to understand that, the idea is as follows. When the Magid says that Yaakov sent the Malachim to Esav, 
and he sent the physicality, the, 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 the mamish of the malach, it doesn't mean that the malachim came to Esau only with their bodies without their soul. Of course, when the malachim came to Esau, they came body and soul together. They needed to do a job, and they needed to fix Esau. At least they attempted. They couldn't. Esau was such a brute klipa. He's such a darkness that even angels couldn't penetrate him. Only Yaakov himself can deal with him. And it's still taking three and a half thousand years until we fix Esau, and he's only going to be ready when Mashiach comes. Okay, so you can imagine what kind of repair Esau needs. Okay, this is massive work. He, he's a, you can say about Esau, he's a piece of work. There's a lot that needs to be done to repair this, this human being. But whatever it is, the, the angels are going down. They're going with all their, they're going with all their, their energy and with all their focus to fix Esau. The only thing is, what the Magad is saying is that in order for them to be successful, in order for them to be able to achieve the rectification of Esau and not become swallowed up by Esau's powerful evil, by Esau's powerful allure. He was, this is a, a, a being that at least at this moment is possessed by satanic forces. He is deeply in Klippa. And as a result of that, when these malachim are coming to him, it's very, very possible that Esau will snatch these very angels themselves and draw, and draw them in into his dark hole. Like this powerful black hole that sucks everything into it. These angels knew that they're going to deal with something very dangerous and they might be sucked into this darkness. So what the, what, what the malachim needed to do before they can go down to Esau is they need to anchor themselves down by Yaakov. In other words, even though they're going to Esau, but they need to first tie themselves in a very deep bond with Yaakov. So even though they're going down into Esau's territory, Esau will not have gained mastery over them and thereby destroy them. Or even worse than that, take their very powers and turn them into his agents, agents of, 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 of evil and the like. They require, it's like every time we go down somewhere to influence, there's always the danger of the influencer being seduced by the one that he's coming to influence and become, become like, fall into the same darkness of the one that needs to be influenced and the ones that he needs to be rectified. So in order to avoid that pitfall, what the, what the malachim needed to do was to bond themselves very, very, very deeply. Their souls, what does that mean? That means that when they came to Esau, they know that this is not their place. They know that they're here on a mission to fix something. But their, their, their heart of hearts and their, 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 core, their core enjoyment and pleasure and delight is not hanging out with Esau. Their delight and their, and, their, and, their, and, their, and their life force is sitting by Yaakov, being with the great Sadiq Yaakov, being connected to the great wisdom of Yaakov, to the Torah, to the mitzvahs, to the holiness of Yaakov. When they're going now to Esau, now they, we don't know how long they're going to have to spend there. <coughs> to fix Esau, it might take a, an hour, it might take a, a day, it might take a year. But the idea is they feel that they're there temporarily. Yes, they're giving it all they've got. They have to give it all they've got or else they're, 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 they're not being true to their mission. They have to give it all they've got, put all their brain power and all their energy into the work of influencing Esau. That's true. But there is something deeper inside of them that they have to still have connected to Yaakov because if their entire being is by Esau, then, then Esau can, can, can destroy them. 
So there is a part of them which means their desire. They don't want to be by Esau. Where do they want to be? They want to be by Yaakov. And the Baal Shem Tov teaches us where a person's heart and soul is, that's where they are. And then you can't fall. If you, if you um, nail yourself down or plug yourself into holiness, so even when you go down somewhere low, you can't fall. This is a famous story that illustrates this from the great Hasidic master, the mayor of Primishlan, one of the great, great Hasidic rabbeim, I think already the third or fourth, gener- fourth generation of Hasidic uh, uh, rabbis. And the mayor of Primishlan was, I mentioned the story once or twice already in earlier classes, but it's just a beautiful story. The mayor of Primishlan was a rebbe in a town, and you're talking in the Ukraine, and it was very, very freezing cold in the winter. And there was a mikveh in Primishlan, there was a mikveh. And tzaddikim and chassidim b'chalal try to go to the mikveh every day. So the mayor of Primishlan would go to the mikveh. Now the way to the mikveh was that the mikveh was on a hill. And there was a long road in order to go to the top of the hill, to go to the mikveh, yeah, there was a long windy road that you go up. And it took a while to go up the windy road, but there was a shortcut. The shortcut went straight to the mikveh from the bottom of the hill, but it, had, it was like a, a shorter way, but it was on a steep incline. Now in the summer, everybody used the shortcut. Because who wants to go the long way? You go. Besides, if you were old and tired and whatever, but you couldn't, you couldn't go up, but like this, everybody else generally used the shortcut to the mikvah, that's in the summer. But in the winter, when it was cold and slippery and snowy and icy, it was very dangerous. And no one would dare use the shortcut because if you're going to go, you can fall down and break your neck. So everybody avoided. Besides Rameir Pramishlan, who was not a young, a young man himself, he was kind of an elderly person. Every day, he was, kind of, there was, he was not a man who wasted his time and he went to the mikvah. People would see it. He would walk right up that very, very, very icy, slippery slope um, and we'd go straight up to the mikveh and nothing would happen to him. One day, a couple of people arrived in town and the people in the town used to talk about it. They say, wow, people used to watch. They say, it was unbelievable to see, literally, they watched a miracle happening in front of their eyes because other people, even the finest skaters, okay, ice skaters, could not walk up this thing and keep their balance. And here, the Rebbe, an elderly person, maybe 60, 70 years old, would every day walk up and go to the mikvah and come down without a problem. So people would speak about the miracle. Remeyer is a miracle worker. They knew other miracles. But this one you can see daily. Fine. One day, people came to town. They heard about it. And they're laughing. They're not exactly Hasidic. They weren't Hasidim. And there are people that for whatever reason have a certain block in their soul. And they can't uh, appreciate Sadiqim. Some kind of, a, some kind of a, a blockage, fine, until Mashiach comes that exists in the world, that there are those that have some kind of a, an inability to be able to understand and appreciate the value of truth tzaddikim. And so they came and they, they laughed, oh, miracles, miracles. Oh, oh, you talk about you can go up there? Well, I'm sure anybody can do it. So they, in order to show, to be able to laugh, they said they're going to do the same thing. So they got to get, so they, and they attempted one, two, three of them went up on the thing. And they made it up like, maybe like 20 steps, where suddenly one fell, the other fell, the third one fell, they all came crashing down. This one broke his arm, the other one broke his leg. They got really, really hurt. Okay, so they learned their lesson. And then, I guess, they were in pain and suffering, decided to go to the mayor to ask for forgiveness. So when they came to the mayor, they asked for forgiveness. And they said, Reb, how do you do it? How do you do it? We saw it's impossible. How do you do it? So he said to them in Yiddish, and he spoke a Polish in Yiddish, and he said as follows. He says, 
Meierl is tzigebinden oiven, faltenisht inten. What does that mean? If you're connected above, you don't fall below. Meierl, he spoke of himself in third person. That's the way he always spoke of himself. He said, Meierl is, is tied above, and if you're tied above, you don't fall below. That means that I tie my neshama up to higher things, and when you are tied really well, you don't fall. So now let's revisit the, what the Magad is saying. When the Magad is saying that Yaakov is coming to Esau, and he's only sending to Esau the physical element of the Malachim, he doesn't mean, as mentioned earlier, that the souls remained over there. No, the Malachim went with their entire being. And we asked earlier, he seems to be contradicting Rashi. Rashi is saying that what? That the Malachim, Rashi is trying to emphasize how spiritual and angelic this experience was. And the Magad is saying how non-angelic this was. Because the, the soul of the angels remained by Yaakov. No, 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 it's the exact opposite. The Magad is trying to add to Rashi and explain how powerful these Malachim were. In order for them to go to Esau, they had to be extremely powerful. And according to the Magid's teachings, the way we're explaining it now, the fact that the soul of the Malachim remained by Yaakov doesn't in any way diminish their power when they're going to Esau. Quite in the contrary, it's exponentially bringing out, it's, it's exponentially strengthening their spiritual power. Because if the Malachim are going to Esau and they're fully going to him, which means they're leaving Yaakov when they're going to Esau. So by the very definition of them leaving their source, leaving holiness and transporting themselves to unholiness, in that very transition of going from point A to point B, their power, their spiritual power is wearing off. They're getting less of their power. It's becoming weaker and weaker. And now when they're arriving to, to Esau, how much of their spiritual power is there? Maybe 70%. And if they hang out by Esau a week or two, what are they reduced? To 30%. However, if they still keep their soul, and if there's like Ramayral said, if if you're tied above, then even when they're going to Esau, they're coming there with 100% of their power because their soul is still plugged in. It's like, let's use today, we use everything, everything, everything as very physical examples. Today we have cell phones. Okay, we all have cell phones. So generally we know, the moment you, you unplug your, your cell phone from the plug, whether it's the morning or whatever, you take it in, you start watching it slide. You know, it was, it was 100% and now it's at 80% and, a few, and then 20 minutes later it's at 70% and then an hour later if you used it, it's at 40% and then you need a new recharge. However, imagine something like this. But if you don't, if you don't take your cell phone out, okay, it's plugged in. <laughs> but the cell phone that's plugged in by the wall, you can't do anything with it. What are you going to do? I mean, you're stuck. I mean, unless you stay home the whole day next to the plug, fine. But imagine if you have a long cable, a very, very long cable, that you can keep the phone plugged in, and you can pull that cable, and go far, 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 but you keep the cable plugged in to its source. So then you're at 100% of that, of, that, of that charge power the entire time, even when you're, in, you're, you're using your phone, and you're, in the, you're far, far away from the outlet, because you have a cable that's still connected. And that's the secret of life, that's the secret. That's what Hasidis, this is, this, is, this is very, very powerful. That's why 
We need, see, our neshama comes down in our body. Our body is the Esav world. The physical world is the world that needs rectification. Yaakov is our neshama in heaven that's sending down the malachim. The malachim are the spiritual powers of our soul that are going down to work with the body. Now the problem is, as soon as those powers are leaving heaven and they're going to earth, they're becoming weaker. And they become weaker, they become vulnerable. When they become vulnerable, it's possible that, the, not, that these powers will not master the body. And the, on the opposite, the body will gain mastery over the soul's energy and use the very energy it's receiving from the soul. First of all, it's possible, let's go talk first. First thing is that it's possible that you're going to influence your body and you're going to do the right thing, very good. But... Because you're weaker, it's going to be a very limited influence. A very limited kind of influence because you're weaker. You don't have your full power. Then it's possible even more than that, that the body is going to take advantage of the power it's getting from the soul. But since it's not enough power where the, where the soul dominates, the body can gain mastery over the soul and use the very, very soul itself for its, for its unholy uh, endeavors or whatever else the body you know, might be into. So that is possible. So in order to avoid that that shouldn't happen, you need to bring the outlet with you. You need to remain connected above even when you're down here. How do you remain connected? When, you go, when your neshama comes, goes away from heaven, it leaves heaven behind and it comes to earth. So how do you stay? The only way you can do that is when you bring, you've got to bring a piece of heaven with you. Or at least you have to have your cable connected to heaven. How do you do that? How in the world does a person maintain spiritual awareness of heaven even when they come down to earth? And the answer is, you have to learn heavenly teachings. That's what the teachings of Hasidus is. If you spend a half an hour, I guarantee you, even 20 minutes a day, in front of a Hasidic book from the teachings, and you, what, what, what is the subject matter of Hasidus? What is it? What are you studying? You're studying about the divine reality. You see, if you're just learning Gemara, and you're learning Mishnah, you're learning whatever, Talmud, Chumash, whatever it is, you're, you're learning Torah. You're plugging in. The Torah is very holy and very godly. But you're seeing the Torah as the Torah was already translated into our reality, into the worldly reality. So you don't, you're not seeing heaven. You're seeing Torah's guidance for life on earth. So you're, but you, that is powerful. But it's not, it doesn't keep you in heaven, in heavenly consciousness. To stay in heavenly consciousness, you have to fill yourself with teachings that never left heaven. Which teachings never left heaven? That's the teachings of the esoteric part of the Torah. So people say, I can learn Kabbalah. You don't understand something. You don't understand the word of Kabbalah. Kabbalah is a map of spiritual names. You don't understand it. It's not no relevance to your life. When you learn Kabbalah, as it is explained through the teachings of Hasidus, then these teachings become alive. Yes, these Kabbalah, Kabbalah is, is, is pointing to various different attributes and different worlds that mean absolutely zero to someone in a physical body because you don't know anything besides names. And you can stand and make charts, but the charts are meaningless. When you learn the deep teachings of Hasidus that explain these godly ideas, ideas to you, you can actually still live in heaven while you're on earth. And that is the power of what the Magad is saying. That when you're going to come down into this world, make sure that you remain attached above and only that you can sublimate the world. This is the explanation of this teaching on a deeper level 
but as we mentioned earlier, on a simpler, deeper level. Now I want to just take it one notch deeper and uh, to get a, a better understanding of this mamish idea of the Holy Magad. So bear with me. Let's for a moment analyze the relationship of body and soul. When I say body and soul, I don't necess- when I'm speaking about soul right now, I don't mean the holy soul. We all have a holy nishama. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking the relationship of spirit and matter. The relationship of just a physical body, physical, matter, physical, and the soul that enlivens it. And in that sense, I mean the biological soul that's enlivening your body, which would be similar to the soul that's in a cat. Okay? A cat also has a soul. A bird also has a soul. A fish also has a soul. And that's the level that I'm talking about. Now let's try to analyze a little bit the relationship between these two. Obviously we understand that the life force that's within the body comes from the soul. But how does the body perceive that? Does the body perceive the energy that it's receiving from the soul as something other than itself? Does the body see itself kind of as a partner? There are two things that join forces together. Me, the body, and you, the soul. Together we will live together and we will, let's, have a, let's have a blast. Let's have a good time together. Let's, let's, let's join together and, and live our lives together, here together, me and you together. That's not what happens. Body and soul do not remain two distinct entities that sh- decide to share and work in, in, in harmony together so they can get something done. That's not what it is. Body, the body becomes completely, completely, completely nullified to the soul, to the spirit. Which means... That the, that, the, that the body dissolves, its very identity of matter dissolves into the spirit, into the soul. What do I mean by that? The body must relinquish, it doesn't have, it doesn't have to relinquish because it never had it to begin with, but just in concept, must relinquish its desire, its who it is to the soul for it to be alive by the soul. Let me explain what that means. Let's even talk about a bird. I'm using bird as an example. When, the, when a bird wants to fly, so who do you think is the one who is like kind of deciding to fly? Obviously, it's the soul, the spirit of the bird that wants to fly. Does the bird have to, does the spirit of the bird have to like say to the body, okay, you know, I have this wonderful idea. See up there, see the top of the tree? I want to go up there. And the body, and let, let's have a meeting, let's discuss this. And then the body has to like kind of commune with the soul and decide back and forth if it's something. And the body says, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I'll give you my wings to do that. And then, the body kind of consents to the desire of the soul to fly, and then the wings flap, and then the bird lifts itself up, and then it flies. And that would mean that there is some kind of communication between two entities over here. That's not what happens. Instantaneously, there is a desire to fly, and the wings so- flap instantly on the second, because the body doesn't have to agree to the soul. Because the body doesn't have an existence outside of the soul. It's very, very identity. It's very being. It knows that without a soul, it's nothing. So therefore, it melts. It gives its entire self up to the soul. And when a spirit and a, and a body are together, there is only one thing. The body is basically an ex, a, 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 a instrument for the for for spirit to actualize itself in whatever it wants to do. 
I'm giving example of a bird. That's the way it is with all of us. When you want to move your feet, your limbs, you don't need to get the consent of your body to do so. You don't even think about it. Instantly you want. When I say I want, it's my soul wanting, but my body feels that it wants because the two have become totally one. Fine, this is not, uh, 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 what's it called again? Uh, you don't have to be an Einstein to understand this. Very simple, fine. Right? Simple idea. Now let's take this a step deeper. As a Jew, we have an additional soul. Besides a biological soul, animating soul, we also have a very high spiritual godly soul. That that spiritual godly soul, its identity, its entire being is to serve and to connect God, to God. Its pleasure is to experience God. Its desire is to get close to God. Its understanding is in the godly. Its emotions are in the godly. Its entire existence is the divine realm. That's our neshama, that's our soul. Now let's ask the question. Is the relationship of our soul with our body on the same, with the same, our spiritual soul with our body, on the same level that the body and soul merge together so deeply that the body and and its animal and its animating spirit become so nullified to the will of the soul that they have no identity and their entire identity is the experience of the nishan. Obviously, not. For most of us. Most normal human beings, it's not that way. And let me explain. You see, to many people, the existence of this higher nishama, whose entire excitement, passion, fervor, ambition, and everything about it is all only the divine, for many people, the nishama is a non-entity. They don't even know of their soul. They don't even acknowledge their soul. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't make itself be heard in their life at all. If sadly a person has not been educated with a Jewish education, have they not been taught, have they not been, have they not been given that sensitivity? Now, I mean, generally the soul is powerful enough to make itself be heard to a certain degree to a person without being taught by parents and the like, like Avram Avinu, from within himself, you come to the recognition that there is a God, there is something higher, there's deeper meaning and purpose. And therefore, people that were educated in a very secular way still are seekers and looking for meaning in life because they sense that soul, that higher soul. True. But it is possible that if children are taught very by parents or by people that have like a have an uh, agenda to destroy any sense of spirituality in a child, you can uproot it to the point where a person grows up ignorant of any higher calling to life, anything. And their life is just about making money and having a good time, you know, making the best of their physical enjoyments of life, and that's about it. There's nothing, they're not living for a higher purpose. That's possible. So obviously you see that this neshama does not necessarily have to be activated at all in a person's life. But now let's talk about us. We might say people that are living what we would call a religious observant life. Okay? In which you are putting on tefillin, keeping Shabbos, going to the mikveh, eating kosher, and doing all the things. What is the relationship of your neshama with your body, my neshama with my body, all of our souls with our body? How do they interact? Do they become one entity? Does our, now, so, obviously a person who is kind of living their life, a life of Torah and mitzvahs, their neshama has pretty much a, a, a presence within their life. 
The fact that I'm abstaining from work on Shabbos, the fact that I want to eat that, but I'm not eating it because Torah says I'm not allowed to eat so, so and so. The fact that I'm not saying that Lashon Hara, I'm not doing that because it's a godly commandment. Obviously, the body has no interest, couldn't care less if it's a body commandment, if it's a, a godly commandment. The body wants to be comfortable. The body wants to do whatever it feels will give it immediate, instant gain or pleasure. Obviously, it's due to the sensitivity, the awareness, the holiness of the neshama that is that is constantly occupying, so to speak, speak, so to say, uh, a big percentage of our consciousness, and therefore controlling our body. We might say that our nefesh, our higher soul, is controlling the guf. You have a guf and you have a nefesh, you have a body and a soul. Your nefesh is dominating over your body. Does that mean 100%? No, because everybody, most people that are observant and, and maybe, uh, you know, adherent to Torah and mitzvahs, at times we know that we slip. The body gets the better of us and the body manages to throw off the control, the filter of the, of the mind or you would call it the neshama and, the, you, and chas v'shom, a person gets to do something they shouldn't be doing, either say something, think something, do something they ought not to be doing and yet... The body manages to do that, and and uh, but then hopefully, just a few once it's done, once the avera was done, you feel bad, and uh, you do tshuva. Hopefully, you do tshuva immediately. You do tshuva a week later, a month later. Yom Kippur. Hopefully, you get back into into sync. So we cannot say that our neshama is not present and affecting and dominating in our life. The neshama is definitely dominating in our life if we're. Choosing to live such a life, fine, I understand that. However, we cannot say either, however, that our body does not have an identity of its own. Our physical life does not have an identity. Of course it does. And let me just prove that simple. See, to the soul, from the soul's reality, anything that is not an expression or an experience of the divine and godly is utterly, utterly, utterly meaningless Void, empty, horrific, abhorrent, nauseating. That's the neshama. So if the soul would be our soul, if the soul would be our soul experience, our exclusive experience, and our entire reality would be our neshama, it wouldn't be possible for us to engage in something that, that is devoid of, of, of godly content. The fact that me and you and everybody over here, sometimes, that, that varies every person differently, but I a lot of times, steer away completely from spiritual consciousness and lose myself in the pleasure and enjoyment of food. You're sitting down, you're enjoying food. And at that moment, you totally forgot about anything godly, holy, purpose of life. That means at this moment, your consciousness, your space that you're in is... All the sensations that you're feeling in your taste buds, you're feeling this and you're feeling that, that's what you're living at the moment. That means you're entering into an experience where God doesn't exist at this moment in your awareness. So obviously, that's a body experience and not a soul experience. That means, and the fact that this can happen many times with all kinds of things, not just eating, and we enter, means that our neshama has not permeated us completely, that the body and its animating force has become completely nullified and one with the neshama, that that's its identity. It's not the same like the, physical, like the spirit I spoke before with the body. You see, spirit and body, the body doesn't have a moment where the body is just being body without soul. It can't. 
Its entire identity is, 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 is soul. Is not, when I say soul, I mean the first level soul, biological soul. But when it comes to the higher soul's relationship with the body, over there we see that it's quite possible that we have physical sensations where the physical sensation is completely divorced of spiritual content. And it's okay. And we're, we're okay with it. And we know we struggle. We're supposed to add L'shem Shemayim and everything that we do. But it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's work. It's toil, it's work. It's not our natural, regular state. Tzadikim, however, great and holy people, their soul is so revealed, so powerfully revealed in their body, to the point that there's nothing in their lives that has any content other than godly content. Even in their most physical of physical moments, and even when they're engaged in the most material physical moments of life, the content of that experience is purely godly and divine. Let's give an example. One of the areas probably in where one's physical self expresses itself and, and sees itself independent of spirituality, or we might say where spirituality is the, probably one of the most challenging aspects in our life would be in human sexuality. Okay? Because in the experience of physical intimacy, pleasure is a very, 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 very much the experience. And for it to be divine pleasure is not an easy thing. So in that particular aspect of life, it's extremely challenging for one's experience to be totally godly and not earthy. Okay? Last week we have an interesting story in the Torah. Yaakov, our forefather, is 84 years old, time for him to get married. He speaks to his father-in-law, Lavan, and he says, give me my wife so that I can have intimate relations with her. Pretty interesting words coming out of Yaakov's mouth. Rashi takes notes of it. That's not exactly the noblest way to propose to a woman. Let's get married so that we can do so and so. It's just, I'm not saying that no one ever does that, but that's not exactly a refined way of speech for any refined human being. Definitely not a way to propose to your father-in-law or mother-in-law and asking for their daughter's hand in marriage. I mean, everybody knows if you're getting married, that means part of married life is going to be so-and-so. That's no, uh, no big chiddush. But that's not what you're going to emphasize. There's a little bit of shame or a little blush. There's a little bit of what we call tznias and modesty that certain things are not just discussed out in the open. And here you have Yaakov who's talking to his father-in-law and that's the way he asks for his wife. Give me my wife so that we can be intimate with each other. And of course I'm saying it in a nice way. Why? How can it be that a tzaddik like Yaakov speaks that way? So Rashi says, because he really wanted to have children. I mean, the reason for, the real reason for intimacy between man and woman, its ultimate purpose is for procreation. And therefore, either we're going to see so, either physical procreation, spiritual procreation, but it's for that. So therefore, Yaakov is dead bent on that and doing that. But still, if that's your intention, fine, but you don't have to say that and speak that way. The answer is that Nachmanides tells us that the reason why Adam and Achava were not embarrassed before they ate from the tree of knowledge, they were naked and they were not embarrassed at all. Nachmanides says because all the limbs of your body have a mitzvah, have a purpose why they exist. And before the sin, body and soul would totally merge together. 
And if body and soul were totally merged together, it means the body knew, uh, the body has no independent existence other than its purpose that it needs to fulfill. So just like a person is not embarrassed with having a mouth to eat because, or hands to, 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 to work and build a table, or because, especially since when you know that your hands are what? Have a purpose. You do a mitzvah with your hand. So the same is also in the reproductive element of a human being. It's for a mitzvah. It's for a mitzvah. So there's no, there's no. You see, when Yaakov was such a tzaddik and reached such levels of purification of his physical body and such levels of revelation of his neshama in his body that his body became completely absorbed in his soul and and there was nothing in his experience of his physical experience that was independent of the sole purpose of serving God. So when, he, when he's asking to get married and uh, mentioning physical intimacy, that was so natural to him because the whole physical... See, the only discomfort that we have with intimacy is because we sense that there is something wrong and the reason why we sense there's something wrong is because every time... Anything physical is de- disconnected from its purpose, then intrinsically we know it's not kosher. We know it's not good. Because body is developed by God to be a vessel, to be an instrument for the soul. Misusing it as an end to itself, not as a means to express and to actualize what the soul needs to do is inherently we sense that there's something that is Yetzirah. Yetzirah is putting things to use in ways they were not meant to be used. And that we can, deep inside we sense something wrong. And that's why there is a shame with our own sexuality. But not to Yaakov Avinu. Because of his perfect unification of his body and his soul. So just like if you would go over to a person and say, um, I need, can I borrow your tefillin, I need your tefillin, uh, so that I can put them on. And if you're a chassid that wears your Rashi tefillin, and you've done your Rashi tefillin, now you say, give me uh, Rebbeinu Tam tefillin, and you put on the Rebbeinu Tam tefillin. Uh, and you say, can I, is there anything to be embarrassed with that? No, you're taking the tefillin, you're using the tefillin, you're wrapping them around your arms, that, that's what you need to be doing. So Yaakov in the same way comes to Lavan, and he says, give me my wife, so that I can do what we need to do, and that is have children. So he says, give me my wife and I will come on to her, which meant literally, perfectly, in sync. There is no other, it wasn't for any physical enjoyment and pleasure other than the purpose of what he needs to do. And he had Leah, so he basically was saying, I did my mitzvah with the Rashi tefillin, now I need my Rebbeinu Tam tefillin, give me my other wife. This was as natural as anything else because there, is, there isn't anything in his physical experience that was detached from, from, its, from its spiritual source. And, and what does that mean? Did Yaakov experience any kind of a pleasure in, in his intimacy with his wives? Yes, spiritual, intense. See, the unification, the intimacy of a, of a couple in its, in, its, in its true purest state, is a unification of two souls, which is the ultimate spiritual pleasure. Because of our lack of refinement and lack of 
attachment of body with with spirit, there is a experience of the physical that takes takes on of its own 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 significance uh, outside of. Uh, to understand this a little better, let me just give a little bit more of an example. There's a, a, a very special story from Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi. Again, we're celebrating his liberation next week. That one time he had a, a colleague of his, a very dear friend, came to visit him. After he had already become a Rebbe on his own, a teacher and a master on its own, and the other colleague of his had already a whole big following and that great Rebbe came to visit him once for Shabbos. Everybody in the house of Rebbe Shneer Zalman of Liadi was so excited that this great other Hasidic master was coming. And to honor the tzaddik, they were all excited to participate in the preparation of food. So before Shabbos, the kitchen was bustling with activity. Everybody was busy cooking and involved. And in order that they had such an appreciation of what it means to serve a tzaddik, so they decided to divide the chores in a manner where everybody was going to participate in the preparation of all dishes. So when it came to the chicken soup, they, you know, one of them was giving the task of slicing the onions, the other one was giving the task of peeling the carrots, the other one was giving the task of removing the feathers from the chicken, or whatever it is, and that's how they, they prepared the, 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 the dish. The one thing that they did not delegate was who was going to put in the salt. And as we know, too many cooks spoil the soup. That's exactly what happened. Everybody felt, oh, no one, told, no one did the salt. Maybe I can have the merit of sprinkling in some salt. So the rabbitson put in the salt. His daughter, one of his daughters, put in the salt. Another one of the daughters put in the other the salt. Maybe someone else who was helping out in the kitchen came and also put in the salt. And meanwhile, there were like 10 people who salted the soup. When the soup was presented to these two tzaddikim on Friday night, so Rebbe Zalman starts eating spoon after spoon. And his fellow put his spoon into the soup and took one sip and could not bring himself to swallow it and literally had to spit out that which was because it was unbearable, the saltiness of the soup. Uh, the holy Tanya turned to his friend, noticing that he's not eating, and he said to him, what's going on? You don't trust my shechita? Chassidah shechita? <laughs> well, you have a problem, because in those days there were those who had forbidden Hasidic shechita. Actually, one of the things that Hasidim did differently was introduced a better kind of a knife, a sharper knife. Uh, it's a whole, a whole, whole discussion out of its own. Maybe you don't eat for my shechita. The other... Tzaddik, of course, smiled and said, no, 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 it's just too salty. I, I can't put this down my mouth. So Rav Shneer Zalman said that I didn't notice. He said, you know, that since I went to the Magid, I've lost all sensation of food. Since I went to my Rebbe, the Holy Mizritra Magid, I don't have a sensation of food. So when I'm thinking about, I heard the story many times. When you think about it, like what? What does it mean? Does it mean that the Magid taught him that you're not supposed to enjoy physicality? And that you're supposed to numb your mouth? Was the Alter Rebbe, did he in some way scrape his tongue until he got rid of his, uh, destroyed his taste buds? Or, 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 or you can say psychologically, did he affect to ruin his taste of physic, physical things? Chas shalom. The Alter Rebbe didn't destroy anything. Definitely a, a, a taste buds, why would he destroy it? That's not what happened. When he came to the Magid, what the Magid did was he opened up his neshama. He opened up the powerful soul of Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi into his body. And now that his, he had the revelation of his very deepest soul fully manifesting in his body, the, the body, when the soul is open and revealed to it, is 
completely integrated and unified and nullified in the experience of the soul, that the body is not sensed anymore in any way, even the tiny little bit. So did Rabbi Shneer of Liyadi enjoy chicken soup or not? Now, I'm daring to say that we would think, oh, he has spiritual pleasures and we have physical pleasures. Okay, we understand spiritual pleasures are richer than physical pleasures, but in some way he's losing out on the delicious taste of a good chicken soup with matzah balls, with knedlach. No, 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 no. I would like to dare argue that the Shneer Zalman enjoyed chicken soup uh, maybe a thousand times more than me and you. It's just that he, he enjoyed it in a complete different plane, on a spiritual plane, which means when he enjoyed it, he enjoyed the godly, intense sparks of holiness that are in the soup. He enjoyed, he had an unbelievable pleasure in the mitzvah of pleasuring Shabbos. There's a mitzvah of Onik Shabbos. In the mitzvah element dominated, so even though the mitzvah is that you should eat something that you physical enjoy, but once it's a mitzvah, the physical experience of it is is the real richness of this experience that you couldn't possibly feel the physicality in it because the physical was so nullified and so unpronounced to the, to the, so it's not like you say, oh, Shabbos, he didn't have uh, schmaltzering and onions and, 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 and the delights of, of Chalant and Kishke. He ate, he, that's considered silly. Uh, let, 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 let's just give another, another understanding and you get this a little better. You know, we mentioned at the beginning, earlier in the class, that, that the body and the, and the, 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 the animating soul become unified, right? Now, what's a sign of a healthy body? How do you know that you have a, you're healthy? Is when you do not feel your limbs. See, the moment there is any kind of sensation of one of your limbs, you sense that you have a body, you sense your limbs, that's an indication of a, that you're not fully alive. There's something wrong. There is a, there is an, there is a problem. For sure, if you feel an ache, if you're, you feel your head and your head is hurting you, you know there's something wrong. You're feeling uh, your stomach, you're feeling your fingers. You feel, you feel a different part of your body is an indication that there's something wrong. Generally, if you're healthy, you don't feel your limbs. But even, let's take that a little further. Not only don't you feel your limbs, that it hurts and ache, then for sure it's a sign that there's something wrong. But even just feeling the heaviness of the limbs, you feel like you're carrying, you feel weight. A living being doesn't feel the weight of their body. If you feel the heaviness of your body, if you're walking and you feel that your nose, you can sense your nose, there's a problem. Sometimes I walk to prepare the shear and I walk for two, three hours outside. And because I'm not moving my hands, the blood is running down my hands and, and, it's, and I suddenly feel my fingers and they're getting like numb at the tips of the fingers. And I know I got to move my hand around because I need better circulation. So what do you say? The very fact that you're feeling something is a sign that the limbs are not totally lost in your spirit. So what happens if you meet someone who's nebach unhealthy and actually feels every part of their body and their limbs? And, they, and, and, and in conversation, you know, you ask them how they feel and they explain it to you and then they ask you how you're feeling and, you know, honestly, you tell them you don't feel your limbs. And they say, you're crazy? I'm like, well, come, come, come. That's, you're, 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 you're missing out so much on the experience of, of a life because you're not feeling your limbs. Obviously, that's retarded. The fact that I'm not feeling, that, that I'm feeling, that's not a chisarin, that's not a lacking. That's because, that's because I'm, the, the, my body is functioning the way it's supposed to be, and that is, it's not sensed, it's not known, because it's part of my soul. There's no quality at all in feeling the physical experience. It, it, it's, 
So the same thing to come and to argue and say, well, if you're not feeling the chicken soup or if you're not feeling the delight of the physical intimacy because you're experiencing, that's you're lacking something. That whole entire experience, I'm sorry for using the term, is a sick experience. Because the fact that we feel physical sensations, that itself is a sign that we're not fully tuned. Because again, let's remember one rule. The vessel is never supposed to feel itself. The vessel has to be completely canceled to the spirit, to the energy that's in that vessel. And our condition until Mashiach comes is one of disconnect. That's what Adam and Chava created in the world. And therefore we feel physicality as an entity on its own. Now we'll go back to what the Holy Mizritcha Magad is saying. And he's saying like this, when Yaakov is sending Malachim to Esav, now let's use this analogy and understand that Yaakov represents the Neshama. Esav represents the material, physical world. Like we know when Yaakov and Esav were in the womb, it says that Esav claimed the physical world and Yaakov claimed the world to come. So Yaakov is a spiritual being of Neshama. Esav is the body, the physical. And Yaakov sending Malachim to Esav means translated into psychological terms, it means your neshama investing itself into the body to, to rectify and direct the physical experience of life to higher purposes. So, when the soul sends down its spiritual powers into the body, here is where the holy Mizritcha Magad is saying, be very careful. If when you're sending your soul into the body, the energies that go into the body to experience physicality, be are, are, are in a level where they, where they themselves are something, are of substance, which means it's not seeing itself like total, like, like just a keli, just like a, a vessel. But rather, once the soul goes into the body, that experience itself becomes an, an experience worthy of experiencing. Then, what does that mean? That means that physicality is being experienced as an independent entity, then even if you're doing things in the right way, even if you're affecting your body, as we said earlier, and you're, you're struggling with your physical life to serve God, but it's not a complete rectification because you're not permeating every element of the physical and earthy life with Kedusha, with holiness. It's only when the malachim are malachim mamish, which means one recognizes that that my investure in physical life and in physical experiences is merely, merely only the mamish, which means it's only my, it's only the vessel. And in that there is higher spiritual content. And what is my higher spiritual content? My soul's mitzvah world. My experience of, 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 of spirituality, my mitzvah dimension. The Torah that I learned, the mitzvahs that I do. That's life, that's experience. This all is just an instrument through which I can do that which is godly and holy in the world, then that's the perfect, that is the ultimate rectification of the physical. Now, obviously, this is on very high levels, and it's not uh, something that each and every one of us achieve regularly, but through the study of Hasidus, and through the, which enables us to reveal our neshama and higher and higher, higher dimensions of spiritual consciousness into our body, and into our, as a result of that, we can at least a little bit, a little bit live it's heavenly days on the earth. We can live a higher life and as a result of that, achieve the sense that our, that, that, that our, our physical existence is just an expression of our spiritual content and as a result of that, we reveal that in the entire world that all physical 
reality in this world is just a keli and an instrument for the godly to reveal itself. And we merit to see that now. Amen. 